0: I mentioned first hour, I was going to wear pastels today because I heard we were doing 80s music, but I didn't know it was 1880s. So I'm glad I didn't wear pastels. I think Holy, Holy, Holy is one of my very, very favorite songs, and uh, maybe one of the first hymns I learned as a new Christian. And uh, just a great, great song. And the Lord tells us in His Word that we're to sing a new song. And so we do want to be writing songs, and we want to be singing new songs because we're more impressed with God's greatness. But at the same time, it's great to have a good history and heritage that uh, we sing some songs that were actually written down in Scripture. And we have this commonality and this identity with other believers who have gone before us. And uh, it's good to know that. We're not the first ones who have ever seen the greatness of God and tasted it and given Him praise and worship for it. So it's good to have that heritage. Pray with me once again if you would. Lord, we are thankful that you being this holy God, came here so that we might know you so that we might know what is true and what is false so that we might be able to even as your word says behold your glory and so we are praising Jesus the eternal son of God who humbled himself and he became one of us And we are grateful for such a great Savior. And indeed, we do want to sing of your excellencies and of your greatness and of your mercy. And we do even want to sing, as your word tells us, even to one another, reminding one another about how great a Savior Jesus is and how he is worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Help us during this time as we study your word together to be moved to being impressed with Christ wanting to serve him, wanting to honor him, ultimately for his own glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the bulletin is packed with service opportunities and the bulletin tells you about the new program starting and if you get on the website you'll see there's new bible studies getting ready to start and, and it's a whole new ministry year for us and there's a lot of programs you uh in a couple of weeks we'll start romans on sunday mornings and that sort of is kicking off uh, the new year as far as ministry year is concerned and sunday nights first and third we're going to do titus and all about how the gospel impacts impacts the city and then on the other nights care groups and some care groups are relaunching and then wednesday mornings there's a women's bible study and a kids club and wednesday night there's a bible institute and children's truth academy and there are all of these kinds of things going on men's bible studies women's bible studies things for kids and programs and you kind of feel like programs get your programs right in one sense it's exciting a lot happening But this morning, I want to ask one of those simple questions that I hope is profound for us as a church. I want to say, what are we really doing? What are we really doing? There's a lot going on. You're asked to be involved. You're asked to serve. You're asked to participate. You're asked to benefit from. But what what are we really doing? Which I think is very helpful to ask sometimes. What's the point? Why are we doing all of these things? And I think there's a good hint as to what are we really doing from those great words from Jesus that Christians have been clinging to now ever since there have been Christians. Familiar words to most of you. Where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. That's at least a hint for us because Jesus, before he dies, says, I will build my church and not even the grave, Hades, I take it there, could stop this from happening. Jesus has this great, clear, bold promise, and we know that it wasn't just an empty promise because he did, in fact, die and go to the grave, and then he rose again from the dead. And so we as Christians should have a great confidence, as Christians have, again, since there have been Christians that Jesus Christ is building his church. So what's the point of all the stuff that we're doing? What's the point of, what what are we really doing? What we're really doing, or I should say what we're really trying to do with all the stuff, is we are trying to be used by Jesus as he builds his church. What we're trying to do, and this might sound a little bit too trivial, we're trying to partner with Jesus. We know He's going to build His church. That's a great promise, and we cling to that. No matter how bad things get messed up by people like you and like me, we know He's going to do it. But I I, want to be a part of what He's doing. I don't just want to be caught up in some sort of fad. I don't want to just keep doing what we've been doing because we've been doing it and seems to draw a crowd. I want to do what Jesus is doing, or I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing, and I hope that's true of you as well. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on two major priorities, two major priorities in Jesus' work of building his church. I think we could go just about anywhere in the New Testament for this. Where should we go? I'm not that prepared. (laughs) So let's go to Ephesians. But we could go to Romans, and we could go to Colossians, and we could go to Galatians, and we could go to Revelation. We could go to Jude. We could go to 1 John. I think we could go anywhere in the New Testament, and we would see that these are the priorities. Jesus is building his church. We want to be a part of it because we don't want to just be a club or an organization or a fad or a trend. So how can we have a sense of assurance as a church And as church members, you and me, how can we have a sense of assurance that we're looking at the same playbook, that what we're doing is not just going to all burn up someday and be be worthless, because that could happen. In Ephesians, in chapter 2, there's a strong emphasis on salvation, priority number one. And in Ephesians chapter 4, there's a strong emphasis on spiritual maturity, priority number two. So those are the two flags that I hope, by the grace of God, Omaha Bible Church plants this year and next year and the 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 next year year, as we keep asking ourselves the question, what are we really doing? What we're really doing, number one, is we are really doing everything we can by the grace of God to promote the gospel of salvation. Priority number one. It's unmistakable in the Bible, and what we're really doing—priority number two, which is related to priority number one—we are seeking by the grace of God to be used by Christ at bringing about maturity in the lives of those who have been saved. If you want to over, if you want it real simple, we're talking about salvation, and we're talking about sanctification. We're talking about the gospel in saving people and the gospel in sanctifying people. That's what we do, or that's what we should be doing. And it should be that simple. So no matter what ministry you're involved in, which assumes you're involved in some kind of ministry, we'll get to that in a little bit, those really are, are, are the, the two flags waving. If the ministry can't, can't be about salvation, can't be about sanctification, then it ought not be something we're doing. Because that's what we're about. That's what we do if we're on Jesus' team, so to speak. If it's all going to count and we're going to get to the end of our life and, and be able to look back and say, you know What? A lot of bumps on the road, a lot of mistakes, a lot of shortcomings. But there's a certain amount of heartfelt confidence that this wasn't a big fat waste of time. Read your Bible, read your New Testament, focus on the gospel of salvation, focus on the gospel of sanctification. You know what? By the grace of God, we did what was best. And it's lasting, and it's true, and it exalts Christ. End of sermon. Let's pray. Let's see it in the text. Let's see it in Ephesians. Let's do some good work in working through this passage. My goal now is to have us focus on salvation and and have us understand this better so that we as a church can be more committed to the ministry of salvation, which is what Christ does as he builds his church. Let's start in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, That's not a happy song. That's not a happy song at all. Now, he's talking to people who are Christians, and he's saying, remember where you came from. If you're going to understand the gospel, you're going to understand what it means to be a Christian. You better understand what you came from. Starting with, you better understand that you were dead in trespasses and sins. And do notice, it's not just those bad people out there somewhere, not like us. He does say in verse 3, we all... And then at the end of verse 3, like the rest of mankind... Here we are, you know, trying to be on Sunday best maybe, cleaned up, happy in Jesus, you know. Even if you're happy in Jesus now, you've got to understand that you were like the rest, spiritually dead, no pulse, no heartbeat. And isn't it interesting that he talks about their conduct in which you once walked? So I think of those, those old horror movies, The Return of the Living Dead. You know, that's us spiritually. We're walking around, but we're zombies. We're dead. But we're living. But, but what leads us in our living, it's so interesting, the picturesque language he uses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We don't have time to get into the details, but he's using verbiage there that would be describing angelic beings, demonic beings, satanic beings. So we were, we were conducting ourselves, we weren't actually dead, we were just spiritually dead, but we were actually following Satan. Satan. So we're like the barnyard animals and we have rings in our noses. We're not free. We're enslaved. And Satan has got the chain. And to make it really real, that, 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 that's me. It's you too, apart from Christ. It's pretty, pretty dark. And if we're going to understand the gospel, we better understand that's what we're dealing with. That's why people need the gospel. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. See, they're still living. But notice how we live. In the passions, it's the word for lust, lust of our flesh. So we're like animals. We don't have any moral radar. We just kind of do whatever feels good, whatever we think, carrying out the desires of the body, the lusts of the body. And isn't it amazing, by nature, children of wrath? But I thought we were all children of God. Well, we are in one sense because God's the creator, but there's been something called the fall, human rebellion, and that means that we're therefore all children of wrath. All of us. And again, you say, what does this have to do with salvation? It has everything to do with salvation. Because this is what we're saved out of. And if we're going to be a church that takes the gospel seriously, we better understand what the problem is. In other words, like we like to say so often, we better understand the significance of the bad news, or we'll never really understand the significance of the good news, not to mention the significance of the good one. What does he save us from? When you want to be a faithful member of Omaha Bible Church and to be committed to proclaiming Christ allah la uh, Colossians chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you've got to be equipped with this truth. What are we dealing with here when we're dealing with people who are not Christians? They're spiritually dead like you and like me, and so we need something to be done other than good sales techniques. We need something to be done other than somehow the ability to manipulate them into doing something. Are we depressed yet? No, Christians aren't because Christians actually like to hear this kind of thing because it's causing us to say, Jesus must be great. He is great. That's Paul in chapter 1. We've got to get serious about the gospel, which means we get serious about knowing what the problem is. And then verse 4 says, but God. And as I like to say, my two favorite words. It'll look weird on a tombstone, but I kind of want it on mine. You know? Can't imagine what they would do graffiti-wise. But anyway, but God, God does something. God intervenes. This is showing us that it is all of grace. It's not what we do. It's not, but Pat had a good presentation of the four spiritual flaws. I mean, laws. Okay, this is God. God has to do something here. God intervened. So I had a good conversation with a man this week, and he said, I just want you to know, after, after good dialogue, and he, and he said, as we're going our separate ways, he said, I just want you to know that I'm unsavable. And if you've known me for very long at all, you'll know I love it when somebody, I, I loved it when somebody said that because that's what somebody I used to know used to say about me. And so the, it was like a softball. The Lord just teed it up, gave it to me, and I said, you know, that's, that's, that's amazing that you say that. And so I told him the story about me in high school and my friend praying for me because he wanted to pray for someone who was unsavable. And the guy looked at me like he'd seen, you know, a ghost or something. Uh, And I said, that makes me love two words in the Bible, perhaps more than any other two words. But God. And he repeated them. He said, but God. Because two, one to three, dead in trespasses and sins. Everyone is unsavable. But God. You got to know that when you're talking to people, You've got to know that when you're thinking about your own salvation. This is all of him. This is what he does. If we as a church are going to be committed to what Jesus is committed to, and again, in one sense, I would like to be so brave as to say, you pick the book of the Bible and I'll preach the same sermon. Not quite that confident. Ten years, maybe. It's, It's all over the New Testament. He's committed to the gospel. He's committed to saving sinners. And if we as a church are going to be looking at his playbook, so to speak, and playing according to his playbook, we got to get this thing. Gospel. What's the gospel? Good news that we're saved from what? Good news that we're saved from whom? All those kinds of things. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespass, in our trespasses, made us, do notice that this is all God, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Please just notice how, how God centric that is, how theocentric that is. Of course, it has to be this way. We're dead, one, two, and three, and He makes us or made us alive together with Christ. It's all God. Some of you like to learn a little extra fancy theology. I'll give you some this morning. This is why at Omaha Bible Church, if we're going to be committed to flag number one, priority number one, we are not going to be synergists. Not a biblical word. You don't need to learn it. But if you want to, we're going to be monergists. Synthetic, combining human beings and their efforts and God synergism it's not Ephesians 2 Ephesians 2 is monergism mono one what does it say right there in the text made us alive together with Christ but God you say why do we have to learn the fancy theology you don't have to learn it by name I thought it might be fun now you know what I think is fun but you do need to understand the truth of it because it will impact the way we speak of Jesus and the way we speak the gospel and the way we stand for the gospel. It's got to be God saving sinners. It's a a one-way street in the sense that God comes all the way down the street and God does something for us. This is how we can say, by grace you have been saved. It's a free gift, it's what He gives us. Do notice it's not what He gives us when we're morally neutral either. Remember one, two, and three, we're not morally neutral, we're, a- we're actually playing for the other team. And He gives us this, so grace is even better than we might have imagined. And, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Just stop for a second and realize now he's talking about something that really was planned before time began, which is chapter 1. Then it's carried out in history And then applied in time, verse seven, coming ages. So think about this. Amazingly enough, chapter one is going to tell us about how this is the plan of the triune God to save a lost humanity. Then you have Jesus coming in real time, space, history, living his flawless, sinless life, obeying the law perfectly for lawbreakers, then going to the cross and atoning for the sins of the lawbreakers for whom he is dying. And then he rises again from the dead. And then, amazingly enough, in our life's history, the coming ages, verse 7, he might show the immeasurable riches of the grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's awesome. It's absolutely mind staggeringly awesome, if that's a word. It's befuddling. Give me another synonym. I don't know. <laughs> it just is absolutely amazing why we've called it good news it's great news it's gospel news and now we're ready to hear verse eight for by grace you have been saved yeah it's grace all right man all caps grace saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not as a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus I love the way he says that, created in Christ Jesus. It's, it's saved in Christ Jesus, but being saved in Christ Jesus means we're a new creation. So he uses creation terminology in Christ Jesus. How about this? Even creation terminology, perhaps, in verse 10, because when God created, he spoke it into being. There was nothing and there was something. Ephesians 2, 1-3, But God... But God made us alive together. That's creation type of terminology. And that's no doubt why he says created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's just gospel, 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 gospel. Do you know the gospel? Can you explain what the gospel is? You need to. Where you're serving in ministry this year amidst all the programs, get your programs, right? It had better be a gospel-centric program to the best of your ability by the grace of God, knowing the gospel so you can play your role because we want to be used by Jesus Christ as he builds his church. And it's going to be a gospel church. It's going to be gospel-centric It's going to be gospel permeated. We won't take the time, but we could start fleshing this out a little bit. Romans 10, 14, how will they know without one who preaches? So we are commissioned to proclaim this message and not just say, oh, yes, isn't it great? We're saved. We could see it modeled in Acts 16, verse 31, where we see it lived out as an example where people are called to believe on the Lord Jesus so that they would be saved. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 would be a good text, too, in helping the church understand how this message we proclaim, this greatness of Christ message we proclaim, is going to be uh, met with hostility by some, but it's going to be met with welcome, open arms by others. And it's not up to us to try to create the outcome. That's up to God according to His calling. We need to have this be a gospel year, a year that gives credit and glory to God for His salvation. there's a baptism class going on right now and we're not trying to keep anyone from being baptized. We just want people to understand the gospel before they get baptized in a couple of weeks at the Fall Family Picnic. Since they're in that room back there, I'm going to talk about them. (laughs) But not in a bad sense. When you're there at the picnic, just listen to the testimonies. One reason why we have a baptism class We're not asking, you know, hard questions about what's the difference between synergism and monergism and can you please explain, you know, the unexplainable. Do they understand the gospel and can they clearly articulate the gospel as it would relate to their own personal life and story? I'm really glad for that class. I'm really glad. Just trying to help even train them to articulate the gospel clearly as it relates to their own life because it's going to be about the glory of Christ because God saves. And so you won't hear, I trust, a bunch of what I call bragamonies. You're going to hear people testifying of the greatness of God in Christ, saving them. I can't wait. It'll be great. And as you listen, you think, this is good. This 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 is good. Omaha Bible Church has so far to go and we need to understand the gospel better and we need to be more faithful to proclaim it and no doubt, we've seen growth in the past. I'm thankful for that. Gospel growth and understanding, gospel passion. But I hope that that time just helps to sort of kindle the fire under you and say, this is good, this is right. I, I, I want to hear more of this bragging in Jesus. Listen for it. It's awesome. It's awesome. I want to meet more people who, by the providence of God, tell me they're unsavable. And if they don't say it that way, they think that. And by the way, I want to meet more people who I can convince that they are, in fact, unsavable. (laughs) Because they are unsavable. But God... Let's move on. One more thing before we move on from that. The one more thing I would want to mention would be when you drive home today, more than likely, unless you live really close, you're going to drive home and drive by a church that is part of a denomination that is by and large shrinking. In fact, you'll probably, given the city Every, every town in America, you're gonna drive by a church that has very, very, very few people left that was once a part of a denomination that was vibrant and growing and making a difference and making an impact. And they had to have a building program because there were so many people coming and that's how they got that building. You know what happens? They're not asking the question, what are we really doing? And if they are asking the question, they're not giving the right answer. And the church is about politics. And the church is about social conservatism. And the, so- the church is about the latest fad that Zondervan has gotten us to buy into. And the church is about all kinds of crazy things, even good things, but they're not church things—things things that you might want to be committed to as a member of our society and culture, and as an American. But when the church takes its eye off the ball, so to speak, the ball of the gospel, it's no wonder the churches die. It's good the churches die. Why do we need another religious organization or club? We don't. So if we want to be part of a church that's actually a church that's alive, that's being used by Jesus to build his church, we have to say, what are his priorities? Gospel, 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 gospel. I talked to a friend after first hour, and, and or before first hour, and he said he was just at a funeral and there was no gospel presented there. He went and talked to the pastor and he said to her, uh, he said, what does it take to, to be saved? And she gave him some kind of gospel presentation. And he said, then why didn't you say that in front of all of those people? And she said, because they already all know it. And he, in essence, said, yeah, right. Let's not assume the gospel. Let's not assume the gospel. First importance, 1 Corinthians 15. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to number two, second priority, second priority. Flag to be planted in the ground. And they're related. They complement each other. But let's look at chapter 4 of Ephesians. And I want you to notice just a couple of big, big items before we start working our way through it. What we're going to do is Ephesians 4 and work through verses 1 to 16 at sort of a 30,000-foot level. But before we begin working our way through it, focusing on spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, if you would just notice a couple of things, and one would be that it is about spiritual maturity. For example, if you turn to verse 13... Verse 13, it says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, here's what I wanted you to notice, to mature manhood. He uses that image there of someone who was an immature child, a boy, and they matured and they became a man. And that's the image that's being used. It's about spiritual maturity. Then if you keep going in verse 14, so that we may uh, no longer be children, then, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. Okay? And so please notice that the, the big context is about growth and maturity. Um, so just keep that in mind. And he's also going to emphasize unity and togetherness, and we don't grow spiritually in isolation. And we'll see that as we go. And, and actually, maybe you should see that as well, so, so I don't forget about it. Please notice the, the togetherness in the context. Obviously, he talks about unity a lot, like in verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. Uh, verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one, so it's, it's in, being uh, inclusive in that sense. Uh, then, if you again look toward the end a little bit, oh, we're going to have a speaking. T- uh, oh, do notice toward the very end there in verse 16. Oh, verse 16, the whole body, so it's togetherness, joined together. Every joint, that's uh, all-inclusive of everyone with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, and it ties that to growth. I want to mention that before we got started. Do notice it is about maturity, but do notice it is about unity in the church bringing about maturity. And do notice it includes each part. So the application at the end is going to be, among other things, maturity doesn't happen with just me, my Bible, and Jesus, you know, rugged, rugged Wild West. It's just me. I'm kind of John Wayne, Lone Ranger Christianity. And that's kind of how we think sometimes. He's actually making the argument that spiritual growth, maturity happens. We get rid of our, of our spiritual huggies, okay, because we are all in them. And we stop sucking our thumbs. The way we do that is not all by ourselves. Just like that wouldn't happen in a family. Actually, he emphasizes each one. One another's. And so you'll for sure hear me say something to the effect of, you need to be involved. You need to play a part. You need to be a contributor. Or we can't, grow spiritually as a church as we would need to and the bottom line is we can't even grow individually as we would need to because we need each other I've got to tell you I love to be alone I like being a loner I like being with people too I love my iPod man I love my iPod I feel sometimes like Gollum on Lord of the Rings you know my precious I just got this weird relationship with my iPod well it's not quite that weird I'm just trying to get your attention I don't know how to act without my iPod because I love listening to Bible teaching. You know, on my iPod, queued up, week in and week out, I love to listen to Sinclair Ferguson. I listen to Alistair Begg. I love to listen to the White Horse Inn. I love to listen to certain preachers. And they're on there, S. Lewis Johnson, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul. And it's great. It's a great way to sanctify garage cleaning. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a great way to sanctify exercise. I just love it. I've got certain earphones for exercise that go around your ears so they don't fall off. They kind of hurt. I've got nice big ones that drown out everything. I like those the best. And I've got some little ones for traveling. Why do you care? I don't know. They ha- listening to Bible teaching, I can prove with the Bible, helps me to grow spiritually because I do need to know things. But I can't just, me, my Bible, and my iPod, and Jesus, expect to grow spiritually and ever get out of my spiritual huggies. And neither can you. Because we see in Ephesians 4, I know we haven't read it all yet, each one, every joint, we're connected as a body. So hopefully I listen to that iPod and get some good sound doctrine so I'm a better teacher. So as a joint in the body, I can provide and give something that I wouldn't have been able to give otherwise. Yes, 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 yes. But we've got to realize that spiritual growth in the ultimate sense that's been designed by Christ, if we're going to be used by Christ to build his church, we're going to be committed to being together. Got to do that. The trendy word right now is community. It's a good word. We've got to be committed to community or we're not really being used by Jesus as he builds his church because that's not how he operates. He wants us together. So let's, with that in mind, don't believe me, but let's see if it's actually true in the text. But with that in mind, let's start working our way through this need to be together even as we grow spiritually and we help others to grow spiritually. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge, intensity, I urge you to do this. Don't say, I'll get out of diapers when I grow up and have a family. That's gross, Right? Don't say, someday I'll be committed, but I'm way too busy now. Get out of your diapers. It's sick, you know? They don't even fit you anymore. Stop sucking your thumb. You're 18 years old, or 28, or 38, or 58, and we're not going to let you just suck it in bedtime when the lights are off. Stop, you know? This is urgency. This isn't how Jesus wants it. You gotta grow up! Okay, made the point, right? I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called! I love context because it helps us to understand that. I urge you to walk. Remember chapter 2, verse 2. We used to walk with a ring in our nose and Satan was leading us around. That was our conduct. Now he's saying, I urge you to walk a different way in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Which would be a gospel calling. The word worthy is the word for, for balance in the Greek New Testament. It's a great picture. You need, to, you, you need to conduct yourself now in a way that is, that is balanced with your gospel calling. We're not going to take the time to do it, but it's very fascinating if you go to chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you learn about how positionally we're in Christ. Positionally we're perfect. And he uses this phrase over and over again or a, var- a variation of it. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Him, in Him, in Him. I underlined it in pink. Can you see it? Thought so. Upside down, does that help? No, you can't see it. Good exercise, though. Because he's talking about, in chapter 1, positional truth. You're in Christ. Well, see, Pat Abendroth is still, when I believe in Jesus, I am still a big, fat sinner. I am not fit for heaven. I didn't clean up my life, and then God accepted me, right? Read Ephesians 2. What happens is... Jesus perfectly does everything for me. He earns righteousness for me. And by God's grace, I'm trusting in Him. Therefore, I'm in Him. I'm united with Him. But I'm still the same old path. Positionally, though, Ephesians 1 and 2, I'm perfect. That's what it means to be justified. I'm declared perfect. This is a good truth. (laughs) And he comes over here to chapter four and he says, Christian who's been declared perfect, walk in a manner worthy, balanced of your calling. You're perfect in Christ, but you are a total slacker, right? Now, by the grace of God, I urge you to start living in a way that is balanced with who you are in Christ. It's a great image. Grow up into who you already are in the eyes of God. It's time to grow up and and not just live over here positionally. Oh, I know I'm in Jesus, so it doesn't matter. I know I'm in Jesus, it doesn't matter. I'm so glad you're in Jesus, but it does matter. (laughs) Right? That's Ephesians 2.10. So it's a great, great, impactful kind of image. Live up to who you already are in Christ as you're united with him. And then he says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, so it is community context, in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We don't have a lot of time to get into all the details of this. There's a detailed study you can find on the Internet or get a CD at the bookstore. We did it years ago. But please do notice. Here's, here's part of growing up in the body of Christ. All humility. Okay. Practically speaking, if we're going to be growing spiritually and be used by Jesus as he grows us up, there's humility. This is not the place for pride. In my way or the highway, you know. And think about it. This is not just him saying, Okay, be humble. Okay, Lord, zap me with humility. Hmm, Humble. No, it's all grounded in chapter 1 and chapter 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But God... Saved you by grace. You don't deserve anything, Pat. Man, I don't deserve anything and I get to be part of the body of Christ. I guess humility is, is, is in order and, and gentleness. In the context of one another in the body, I'm being gentle as God was gentle with me and not just snuffing me out as He had every right to do. With patience... Again, that's great in the greater context. We learned in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3 how we were playing for the wrong team. and God had every right to just take us out. He's patient, He's kind, He's gracious. So we should be patient with each other. Bearing with one another in love. I mean, just think about that practically in the body here. I think, I am so tired of Pat and his just, you know... Not being perfect, man. I need a different pastor. You know what? I'm really tired of Pat, too. <laughs> and his not being perfect as a pastor, man. <laughs> but the essence is as God was patient with you, you should be patient with me. And I sometimes think who should I name? Well, I'm not going to. <laughs> You know what? I'm really sick of this. I'm tired of the same old, same old thing happening in John Doe's life. What in the world? What kind of idiot are you anyway? It's kind of how you want to go. Okay. Bearing with one another in love. Well, the context of chapter 2 is how God loved us. He had every right to give up on the relationship, so to speak. Patient, kind, so as he was kind and patient with me, I need to do the same thing with you. And this is how it needs to happen in the body. It becomes very practical for us. Let's keep moving. Uh, He says there's one body and one spirit, so he's going to give a theological argument for this. You, You should get along, Ephesian church, because there's only one body, one spirit. We're called to... The one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Maybe just one thing to to observe there for the sake of time. One God and Father of all. He names all these unifying factors. You know, you you and I are going to conflict and we're not going to see eye to eye on everything and there's going to be tension because we're still growing up and what's going to happen is he's going to say, yeah, but what about the fact that there's all this unity? There's all this unity and you know what the ultimate trump card for unity is? Hey, Pat, there's only one God. So Pat, you should be able to get along with other people who've been saved by the same God. So if you don't know what to say to somebody who can't get along with somebody else, you can name a lot of things but eventually you just pull out the big gun and you say... I thought you were a monotheist. (laughs) There's only one God. Get along. Get along in the Ephesians church or the Ephesian church or the Omaha Bible church. And then he says, therefore it says, he's emphasizing this unity and giftedness and growth. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And, uh, just, just quickly to understand the flow of things without derailing the, the overall picture at least for, for the sake of this morning. He's quoting from the Old Testament and he's using this image that was pretty common in warfare. If you're the conquering king who is the victor, what are you going to do? You're going to have a victory procession. Not only that, you're going to get the spoils of war because you're the conquering king and you are going to distribute the spoils of war to your friends. And you might not like the image because you're a pacifist or something and you have a problem with God, you know, being a warrior, but... (laughs) Don't read the rest of the Bible. <laughs> okay. He uses the image, and uh, for a good reason. Jesus is the conquering king. He is the victor, and he's using that image that as he has his victory march, he gives gifts to his friends. And in this context, the friends are his, are, uh, his friends are Christians. So he gives gifts to bring about maturity here in this context. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? I personally don't think he's trying to develop some sort of uh, intricate theology here. I don't think he's talking about First Peter going down uh, to proclaim victory. I think it's just one basic idea. What does it mean that he ascended? I think we all know. After he was victorious, he ascended. Read Acts. Well, that assumes that he descended. The ascension assumes the incarnation. He came here. He descended from heaven to earth, humbled himself in order to win the victory for us, and as he's going and ascending, he's giving us gifts. Gifts. Why give us gifts? Context? For spiritual maturity. That's all. So, a major issue there, just to make one simple point, I think. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave the apostles, the prophets, chapter 2, verse 20, I think it is, foundation for the church like Paul and others would come after him. The evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now let's stop there just for a second. I'm so impressed with this. He humbled himself, came to earth like Philippians chapter 2. Then he's the victor and he goes in victory and he gives gifts. That should be really motivating to us. To get equipped, to get maturing, to get along we're talking about the eternal Son of God humbling himself and coming, him, coming here for us when we didn't deserve it. And we're talking about this, this great Christ who did all this for us, and when he ascended, he gave us victory gifts. How about this? To the degree that we can't get along with each other, it's saying something about what we believe about his humility and about his exaltation. We we need to get equipped. We need to get out of the diapers and get along because we believe in a Jesus who gave us good gifts that equip us to be able to do that. We need to be doing that as a church. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So we've got the no man left behind doctrine. (laughs) Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. and and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Do notice maturity is tied to knowledge without question, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. That's a good figure there. We're going to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children, thus I keep talking about huggies and thumb-sucking, it's not without reason, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's quite an image. I think this is one of those passages for me that if I just did a word study and that's all I did and just looked at one word and another word and another word and another word, I might miss the forest and you might too. The forest is clearly about maturity, which is tied to unity and humility and all of these other things, but it is also tied to community. We we need to remember this. If we're going to be a church that's growing this year, and I don't mean by numbers, if we're going to be a church that's growing this year, it means each one. All right. Where the shoe fits for you, you need to wear it. In this together. Got to get along. Because if we're going to grow, if I'm going to grow spiritually, I need your giftedness. If you're going to grow spiritually, you need my giftedness, and you get the idea. Uh, home church isn't an option. Because I don't have every spiritual gift. So I'm robbing my family of giftedness, your giftedness. We've got to work together in this. Self iPod church for Pat isn't an option. You know? Well, you know what? I could just get my own, I could just get my own feeding. Yeah, but see, part of this is God and his infinite wisdom. We're together, and so I'm going to say something wrong, and I'm not going to be alone, left to my own errors. You're going to say, hey, Pat, um, what you said wasn't right. Or you're going to say something wrong. Or you're going to act wrong, or I'm going to act wrong, and we're together, and we can say, you know what? I I I need to help you on that. I'm going to be in a fundamentals of the faith class and say, well, I believe Jesus is 50% God and 50% man. And hopefully Todd Swift, who's teaching in there, is not going to go, well, you're an idiot. (laughs) But he's going to help me understand that that's not what the Bible teaches. I need to grow. I need to grow up. I need a teacher in my life. I need another person in my life. Sort of like Colossians 1. We could have gone there. Colossians 1, Paul says, we proclaim him... Proclaim Christ, same kind of stuff here. Admonishing every man, New American Standard says, which means correcting. And teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. He's talking about the same thing he's talking about here. We we, we want to grow up spiritually. How do we get there? Not by ourselves. Not with only people who will tell us what we want to hear. There's got to be a place for admonishing, correcting. Todd needs to say to me, Pat, actually, that's not true, Let me, a, 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 and that's, a, that's, that's, that's not good theology, or however he wants to say it, and then he needs to say, actually, if you want to use numbers, though the Bible doesn't put it that way, he's 100% God, and he's 100% man. Let me show you where the Bible clearly teaches he's God, the eternal God, and he's also absolutely, completely man. Let me show you John chapter 8, or John chapter 10. Let me show you 1 John, and We don't know exactly how it works, but let me help you out with this. And let me even show you through history how this has already been battled about, and that might help you. And he needs to do it with all wisdom. In other words, in our vernacular, not like a blockhead. Like, Pat, you're the stupidest person I've ever met. Right? With all wisdom! Because he wants me to grow up spiritually. And I just use that as one example. Whether it's in a care group, whether it's personal interaction, whether it's over coffee, you're on cleaning team together, whether it's a theological issue or a moral issue, a discernment kind of issue, he expects us to be together so that we're growing up and that we're becoming mature. And ultimately, remember, this is for the glory of Christ because now the church actually is starting to look like Jesus, as in the body of Christ. It becomes very, very practical for us and very, very important for us that we're together and working together. I suppose there are other kinds of illustrations like that. I'm going to end as far as illustrations on that note. I take you back to what he said at the very beginning where he says, I urge you. I heard you, chapter four. You gotta do something, okay? Do something. Don't wait. Somebody said to my wife, well you must be potty training in your house because Pat keeps talking about diapers and first service. I didn't even think about it, we are. Um, And I'm doing well. It's one thing when, you know what, let's get past this. He's two, you know, let's move on. But what if we had a 17-year-old in our house? Potty training. You'd go, man, somebody needs to admonish Molly. <laughs> right? Admonish with a capital A. You better show her what the Greek word is. <laughs> you say, that's wrong, that's disgusting. In fact, you're not, that's... You should be reported. What kind of parent are you anyway? Right? Hopefully you admonish me. My point is, it, it's not its not nice to just say, it'll be okay. It's all right. You know what? They make adult sizes. <laughs> That's not loving and kind. Loving and kind is to say, you know what? There's a way to get past this. Let me exhort you pastorally to say get involved, do something, find a foxhole and jump in it with somebody else. And more than likely, even if you hate each other's guts, you're in the war together. You're going to learn to get along because you're playing for the same side. You're going to grow and we're going to grow. And Jesus is going to be honored and Jesus is going to be glorified and good things will happen. Someone asked me this week, and they said, uh, someone who doesn't go to this church, another a Christian friend, I don't know that well. We've had some other conversations. and He said, so do you think, you think you're going to be in this for 10 years, 10 more years? I said, I think so, if I'm not dead before then. I think so. So basically, I don't know what word he used. He said, so what's your vision for the next 10 years then? Uh blocking and tackling drills. <laughs> Basically. Now, I hope we get better at blocking and tackling drills, and you know, maybe we'll score a touchdown someday. I mean, <laughs> the idea is we're not trying to reinvent ourselves or be creative or be faddish in lots of different ways. What we're trying to do is. Make sure we're on the same team as Jesus who's building his church. And how does he do it? Through the proclamation of the gospel for salvation. And quite frankly, through the proclamation of the gospel for sanctification. That's what we're going to do. And again, I hope we get better. I'm so glad that in the last 10 years, I I, I love Christ more. And I know the gospel better than I did 10 years ago. And I see it as more strategic and more important. and And I hope there's some growth there. I think there really is. In some of your lives, I know there is. So yeah, 10 years, I hope there's more growth and it's crystallized more and we feel it as a burning passion more and we're more effective in more places, more so. But at the end of the day, it's salvation, sanctification, blocking and tackling. Let's not get creative. But let's be used by Jesus, the victor who has the spoils of war. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning and for a great, great time this morning, even in your word, to talk about things that matter and things that will matter forever, to think that the gospel of salvation, the gospel of sanctification are going to matter forever and ever and ever and ever because they're going to matter in heaven. They're going to matter when you create a whole new earth. It is always going to be relevant, always going to matter because Jesus has been given the name that is above every name and every tongue will one day confess, having bowed the knee to him, that he is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, by your grace, may we be partnering with him and serving him. For believers who are here, motivate them Urge them through me. For unbelievers who are here, motivate them. Urge them even through me to believe on the Lord Jesus so that they might be saved. In whose name we pray.